Hey everybody, Todd Mitchell here. Welcome back to Game Dev Breakdown. This time we're talking to Clinton Keith, the author of Agile Game Development, Build, Play, Repeat, 2nd Edition. He has been around the game industry for quite a while, and he's done some very cool stuff that I know you're going to enjoy hearing about. We'll get to uh, find out what's in the book, what he's presenting at GDC coming up, and uh, just some general industry shop talk. So uh, hang out, enjoy, and here is my chat with Clinton. Good evening, fans. Tim Kittrow here, the voice of NBA Jam, and you're listening to the Game Dev Breakdown Podcast, brought to you by CodeWritePlay.com. Whoa, boom shakalaka! My mom gave birth in 1985. I was blue within a Pac-Man ghost, barely alive. In the Cold War, my only blanket was Tetris. I played Rampart with Reagan Rampage, the world for breakfast. The laundry mat was my sanctuary, that arcade was my church. Clinton Keith, author of Agile Game Development, Build, Play, Repeat, 2nd Edition. How are you? I'm doing great, Todd. How about yourself? Just great. Uh, I have enjoyed looking through the book so far. I'm still working on it because that is a, a big book full of a lot of great stuff. How how are people enjoying it so far? Uh, well, you know, I've, I haven't even got my copies yet. And uh, I've heard from a couple people that received theirs. And like you said, it's I, I, you know, it's about 500 pages. So right. I don't think anyone's had the time to go through it yet. So uh, yeah, I've I've gotten to start, and I'm enjoying some of the anecdotes and uh, hearing about your time in the industry. For uh, for listeners not yet familiar, give us sort of the highlights of your game industry career and sort of some of the projects and teams you've been attached to. Sure. Well, um, I, you know, I came from the defense industry, defense contracting industry, and worked on some pretty huge projects like F twenty two fighter aircraft, F twenty three, or YF twenty three. And uh, so I was kind of used to huge projects with large documents and the failures that went along with that, you know, like planes like the F-35, which I, I touched on a little bit in its early development, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars over budget and a decade late. And uh, so when I shifted to the game industry, I found that we were making very small games that took six months and maybe, you know, maybe a dozen people to uh, to finish it. Uh, my first game out the door was a game called driving game called Midtown Madness. Went on to do a number of other driving games. Worked on early versions of what's now Red Dead Redemption, and uh, and uh, over the course of uh, a decade, I saw the size of games increase. So instead of a dozen people for six months, uh, my last game I worked on, which was based on uh, the the Bourne movies, uh, Jason Bourne movies. Now, we got up to about 150 people, and it took about three years. And since then, I've worked on projects where there's up to 1,000 developers. And a lot of these practices that you see, because, I mean, that gets very expensive, started to look like the projects I saw in the defense industry with big, huge budgets, uh, big, huge uh, plans, large documents that never quite worked out. And you're starting to see the problems with, or you, you've been seeing the problems with, uh, games going over budget or releasing very late or just not being very good at all uh, because the document couldn't predict exactly what was uh, what was going to be fun with the game. But I had this experience early on in my uh, game development career where I met uh, this man named uh, Shigeru Miyamoto, who is probably the most famous game developer who has done Mario and Donkey Kong and all these favorite games. He's probably the most successful game developer. 
And he ran projects differently. He didn't even kind of run projects. He just ran games differently where he would talk about an idea with a very small team. And he'd tell us, he'd give us three months of money and tell us to go find the fund. <laughs> and he'd come back in three months. That was the only limit of the size of the contract. And if we hadn't found the fund, well, we'd try a different idea. And we kept going through different, all sorts of different ideas and finally settled on one. Then when we had found the fund, he gave us more money and more time to finish the game up, which is the kind of the complete opposite of that pre-planned approach. Yeah. Uh, so so when, when I started a company or started a company called uh, High Moon Studios, which grew very fast, ran into these traditional problems. About this time, when we were really struggling, this book about uh, uh, Scrum came out in 2003. And I read it, and it reminded me of that find-the-fun approach of exploring what's fun, discovering what's fun, and instead of trying to plan it out in a big, huge 300-page document that nobody really reads anyways. <laughs> and, uh, and so we started, we applied that. You know, it's like, hey, let's take two weeks instead of three months and see if we can make the game better, see if we can find a little bit more fun throw out a bunch of stuff, fail fast, and, and build upon that. And, uh, and once we get the core of the game, then do that approach where hey, hey, now we can plan more. Now we can plan to build the 20 hours of gameplay and set up more of kind of an assembly line of making all the characters and the levels and things like that to get the game out the door. And so uh, we practiced that. I started talking about that at the Game Developer Conference and then in 2008, decided to do this full-time, going around to studios. And I visit about 10 to 20 studios a year for the last dozen years and learned a lot. Learned about, you know, how different teams develop games differently. And also over the last dozen years, you've seen mobile emerge as yeah. a huge force. There's a big dominant section of video game development. And all the lessons learned and how agile practices apply even more the game, the mobile game development kind of led to the second edition of the book, which is just coming out now. Yeah. So, I mean, you've, you've kind of been an expert on this development strategy for a long time, and it's interesting to see new things come into the industry and how they kind of stand up with uh, what you do. I'd, I'd say probably not too many people have uh, such an interesting look into the state of the game industry as yourself. Is that right? Yeah, you know, at first I worked at two studios and each one for about eight years. And you get very used to this one approach, this one view of development. And it was quite a shift to go and visit, you know, up to 20 studios a year and spend up to you know, like a week with each one or a month or so and kind of get this different perspective. It's, 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 it's very interesting. And, you know, we actually threw a book together to kind of, you know, kind of collect all those different practices as well. Yeah. And just learn, you know, and I try to incorporate that. As you mentioned, a lot of, I try to tell a lot of stories in the books about, you know, how to, how, in, about, about things in ways that, that kind of connect in real terms and real stories about what game developers go through. Because there's just some amazing stories about what's going, around, going on around the world in game development. Absolutely. And uh, the book kind of opens with, with this. It, there's a chapter called The Crisis Facing Game Development. And in that chapter, you you don't really pull any punches about some of the issues that have sort of, um, I, I would maybe call them growing pains in the industry. You know, it started with small teams and small projects, like you said, and uh, a lot of the fun is gone because 
we have these very large projects with monumental pressure. I mean, we've got crunch culture, things you hear about in the news all the time. And it seems to me that this book is sort of a playbook for, uh, if not eliminating all of the cultural issues, uh, certainly finding a way that it would at least be possible to avoid things like, you know, out of control crunch or greatly missed budgets, you know, tons of lost money. Is that right? Right, right. And and in much of the edition of the second edition is talking about, you know, what I've discovered over the last 12 years, which a lot of it just really comes down to culture as well as project management practices. You know, I've worked with a lot of teams that, you know, have to ship at a fixed date, like sports games. They have to come out at a, you know, before the next season comes out or they lose half their sales. Mm-hmm. And really just this approach of saying, oh, we have to get every bit of scope that we planned into the game uh, and, and make sure it hits this specific date just kind of leads to those issues where they're, they're building all of these features in parallel and they get themselves painted into a corner where the only, the only uh, way out from their point of view is that we have to make people work here seven days a week, you know, yeah. and, uh, and, one of the things that I introduce in, in others, and, and this comes from, you know, uh, you know, our coaches in the past and, and writings for non-game developers is that there's ways of measuring your progress. It's kind of like, you know, exploring how, how, how are we finding the fun by working on the most important things, one or a few at a time, to discover what the game is early than, than basically shoving all the scope in and ho- crossing our fingers to hope that the game is going to come together at the end. Right. And that, that second approach leads to scrum because it's panic. And one of the things that we talk about is measuring different ways. And, you know, a lot of companies still, they, what, they measure productivity by counting the cars in the parking lot on Saturday or you know, measuring how many hours people are working on tasks rather than measuring what's going into the game, uh, which is harder to do, but it tells you more of a real story that once you get about two or three weeks into crunch, your actual productivity of improving the game declines. It actually declines several weeks after that to the point where you're adding less to the game than you would if it was a normal five-day work week. Mm -hmm. Um, We discovered that one early, and and at that point we just said, hey, we're never going to force crunch. In fact, the problem became is keeping teams away from crunching themselves, yeah. uh, you know, beyond that uh, two or three week period of time that uh, turns out, you know, it's, it's studies have shown that since uh, from a century ago. So it's nothing new, but it just comes to the fact that it's really a, it's really a cultural issue where we just think that people we could treat people like machines, put them in at their desk for twice as much time that will get twice as much output from them. And uh, that certainly isn't the case. Yeah, and you you mentioned GDC before, and that'll come up again here shortly. But uh, I think it was one of their own surveys that went out uh, probably two years ago now that that came back with like as much as forty forty five percent of people who said they had crunched in the last year said no one told me to do this. I just felt the pressure, and I knew I had so much you know to do that I I felt I felt I couldn't do anything else. So it, it definitely seems like uh, that's that's correct, that it, it takes someone in your position with your expertise to sort of avoid, I mean, is it improper planning or, you know, budgeting or are, are you just tackling too much at once, like you said? Well, it's, it's the fact that we really can't plan 
as much as we really want to. When you're spending $100 million, there's stakeholders out there, there's publishers out there that, that, that really want to know exactly what they're going to get for $100 million. And that forces us to make these, these incredible plans that, you know, we have, nobody has any idea about how much we can accomplish. And a lot of it is risky in terms of, like I said, finding the fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what happens is we just, because we have this big, huge plan, and again, I saw this in the defense industry when I worked on a document that weighed 40 pounds. <laughs> and the, the Air Force approved our, our, our plan, which was put together by me, a person that was just out of college. You know, I just gathered all these documents together into one big document. I didn't even read it. <laughs> I know the Air Force didn't read it. They just weighed it. And they felt it's like, hey, there's, TRW Military Avionics has a 40-pound plan where Grumman only has a 20-pound plan. Let's sign TRW. And that's what's really going on is that, is that there's this fake sense of certainty that puts the blinders on us that we just start making these little parts of a, of a, of a game. And then we assemble all those parts at the end, and then we find out whether it's fun at the end when we've run out of time and money. And the only recourse uh, to managers that don't know any better or are afraid of losing their jobs is to force the team into crunch, which I'm fully guilty of. You know, for the first 10 years of, of, uh, of my career as a, as a game project manager or director of product development, I put team, teams into crunch. I didn't know any better. I didn't have any better metrics. Yeah. And uh, when somebody's investing $100 million, you just can't turn around and say, well, we're just going to explore. We're going to discover something. And so the different approach, again, it's cultural, is to get those stakeholders, those publishers, more intimately involved with what's going on every few weeks to say, hey, this is the latest. We're, let's discuss where we should go next to make the game more fun. You know, we still have this vision of doing you know, like a sports game. We're not going to change the vision every two weeks, but we're going to refine and understand a little bit more. And again, this this is a lesson I learned from the most popular and successful video game developer in the history of our industry of, you know, find the fun, which is focusing on, on risk. Uh, you know, what's the riskiest part of this hundred million dollar effort? Well, if it's not fun, we're not going to make our money back. Um, and so that's a lot of my GDC talk is, is how do we embrace risk? How do we, you know, instead of avoiding it or trying to write a big, huge document that makes people feel better that it's somehow planned away, uh, which you can't plan away uncertainty, how are we going to tackle it head on and, and do something about it up front instead mm-hmm. of trying to plan it away? And uh, and talking about that, you know, really approaching it from a from a cultural point of view, you know, from leadership, what are leadership, what's leadership doing? How are they encouraging that? How are they, you know, accepting that, hey, we're going to do a bunch of experiments and many of them are going to fail and we can't punish people for not, you know, for, for trying something and discovering whether it's fun or not. Right, right. And you, you talk about the importance of changing the way that you plan, the way you design, the way you document. Uh, I have, having come from an Air Force contracting background too, oddly enough, uh, I've also been caught up in some of the super planning and super budgeting and and uh, the things that sort of fall through the cracks in that situation long term. But uh, I, I don't want to leave anybody behind who isn't f- familiar with these concepts. So at very high level, talk for a moment about what it looks like to be in an agile 
environment compared to what a lot of other, not just game development studios, but enterprise software uh, across across that industry. What does that look like by comparison? Well, a lot of times, you know, you look at it from uh, the different levels. From the developer point of view, uh, typically in a, in a more traditional approach, you're handed a, a spreadsheet or a Jira, spread, a Jira tool that lists the individual tasks that you have to accomplish. Mm-hmm. You know, write this bit of code and write that function in there, and you really have no idea about how that integrates with the whole or, or expect to see that really working with the whole for, for quite a uh, whole product for quite some time. Uh, from the developer's point of view, uh, from an agile approach, is that you're part of a cross-discipline team and usually no more than 10 people. And what you're doing is you're given a challenge or a, a feature from the user's perspective every two or three weeks. Or you discuss that, you know, discuss it with this role called a, called a product owner, somebody who's a, the, the ultimate vision holder for the entire product. And you discuss, it's like, hey, what, what can we accomplish in two weeks and why do we want to do this? What's from the customer or player's point of view, why is this important? Mm-hmm. And you have this conversation about how to how we could possibly solve this. And you and this cross-functional team will will come up with a, a plan that you guys own uh, yourselves about how you feel you can accomplish this goal to to add value to this product in the next few weeks. And then you're, you're often doing that and you own that plan as a team and uh, you can come up with modifications, not necessarily to the goal, but how you achieve that goal and have discussions with the stakeholders along the way if something pops up. And then at the end of the two weeks, you demonstrate the product with that improved functionality that you uh, agreed to. And usually there's, there's, you know, there's more than one feature that you're adding uh, or improving the game. And uh, yeah, sometimes you won't, you won't achieve all of them yeah. because it's, there is uncertainty. There is exploration and, and trying things out. And then we get to back together with the stakeholders every two or three weeks and we discuss, all right, did that add value? Do we want to double down on that? Do we want to go in a different direction? Again, it's kind of Miyamoto's find the fun. And, uh, you know, over the course of development, you're kind of narrowing in on things. And, and I talk about this at GDC where, you know, at the, when we start a game project, we're in full exploration. You know, we're throwing stuff out. We're experimenting like scientific researchers and trying different things. Right, you know, favorite example is SpaceX. You know, it's just like they decided, hey, we want to land the first stage of our rocket, and mm-hmm. they didn't spend a decade trying to come up with the perfect solution. They said, all right, let's launch one in three months and see what happens when we try to land it. <laughs> and of course, it blew up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but they learned a lot from it, and they they the next experiment they did three months later still blew up. You know, but. <laughs> uh, it took them. It took them less than a year to kind of nail that landing, or a couple of years to nail that landing. Where it's just like if you tried to come up with a perfect plan, uh, you know, it would take you a decade, and you still probably would crash on the first one. And so, that first part is just exploring, throwing some things, a lot of things out, and then as you go forward in the project, you're refining things and you're narrowing things down, and you're exploiting what the what the what the game's opportunities are and. and especially with, as I've mentioned, with live mobile games that are, are very predominant, you can, you can get that feedback from your players. You can get that data back that, tell, that tells you on a day-to-day basis what parts they're enjoying and what parts they're struggling with 
and you can come up with that you know that plan to release something in two weeks that, that doubles down on the things that they're enjoying or fixes the things that are getting in their way instead of again adhering to that plan now from a project manager's point of view uh, again from a traditional point of view of traditional approach like in the defense industry or my early days as a game project manager I'd come up with, you know, these huge spreadsheets that would list out those tasks. I'd come out with the perfect plan. And it would take me three months to create that plan. And uh, it's kind of like what Eisenhower said, you know, about D-Day. He said, you know, uh, the, the plan is, you know, the planning is essential, but the plan is useless. Because, you know, the paratroopers dropped on the wrong part of France. You know, the, the, mm-hmm. you, know, the you know, Omaha Beach was a disaster. And basically, it's like you can't spend, I couldn't spend another three months revising the plan that I'd worked on after the first week of development. And so the idea is what we plan the short term in detail. And then the further out the plan goes, we kind of, the the plan gets less defined. It it starts talking about larger chunks of things um, that we're going to break down later because the idea is like, you know, we can make better plans when we learn more. Um, and so the idea of agile planning is to just to defer decisions as as far as you can responsibly defer them until you, you can make better decisions. Because when you make all the decisions, your design decisions, your technology decisions at the start of the project's development, you're making all those decisions when you have the least amount of information. Yeah. And so there has to be this level of vagueness. And the, the problem is, is with these, you know, the stakeholders or the publishers, that, that can't accept that level of vagueness. But the thing is that we have to, again, it's a cultural thing, we have to say, all right, in exchange for this level of vagueness, we need you more involved on, to come and look at the build and look at the game every two or three weeks and have conversations with us. And it's, it really comes down to building that level of trust between the developer and the stakeholders and build that, that higher level of communication because those, those two kind of go hand in hand. When you can accomplish that, you get better results again because, you know, it's like I've, I worked like my first game, Midtown Madness. You know, it's it's our publisher, Microsoft, kind of ignored us for the first ninety percent of development, and then they came marketing came in at the end. You know, with all these tremendous ideas, we called them the Eye of Sauron because it was just <laughs> this big focus, this eyeball of marketing turned on us and focused on us when it was just too late to make changes, and they came up with great ideas. Yeah, they wanted to put Taco Bells all over our game so that we could, they could give away free burritos. And I was like, man, that's a fantastic idea, giving <laughs> free burritos away. But uh, it could have been the best feature in video game history. But we just had no more time. We had to get it out the door. That's some fun trivia about Midtown Madness. That's a good, <laughs> nice takeaway there. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, no no plan survives contact with the enemy. So that makes a lot of sense. Tell me, I, I know at this point in your career, you've gotten to see and help implement this process yourself with, with different development teams. And it's a smart strategy, but I'm sure a lot of people look at it as somewhat radical. I mean, do you get pushback on things like cross-discipline teams that weren't used to working that way? Uh, I mean, from all levels, from creative and from management? Well, especially at first, you know, back in, we started talking about this in 2005, uh, at GDC, you know, that was well. This will never work for games. Um, <laughs> but but many of them had been doing things like pods and things like that, where they understood cross-discipline teams and 
other, you know, Miyamoto worked with other developers as well. Then it became a little bit more focused. Like, you know, it's like people would say, it's like, well, this won't work with MMOs. Uh, or this won't work with our particular game. And uh, to me, it's just like there's no one size fits all. You know, it's like at first I was teaching a lot of Scrum. But Scrum is great for exploration, for the what we call the pre-production. It's not so great for the uh, assembly line, the production line of creating assets and like levels and characters and things like that. And so it kind of mix up these tools and, you know, what works for an MMO game might not work for you know, a, a free-to-play mobile game. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we change up practices and it's all about exploration and, and giving the team the ability to, within those iterations, you know, the two to three iterate, two to two to three week iterations, to basically come up with ways of doing their work better because people who are closest to the work will come up with some of the best ideas. So I think some of it, it's really, it's, it's really mainstream right now. I would say practices like Scrum and Kanban are really the dominant ones in the game industry. But a lot of what people call Scrum or call Kanban is really, it's, it really doesn't follow a lot of the principles in many ways because some of the radical parts or parts that people call radical are things like letting the teams organize their own membership. There's never been a better time to find out why BetMGM is the king of sports books. Download the BetMGM app and place a $10 money line wager on any NBA playoff game. If either team hits a three-pointer in the game, you'll win $200 in free bets. Just use code CHAMPION200 when you make your first bet. Sign up now and discover BetMGM's daily promotions, boosted odds specials, and more. Download the app or go to BetMGM.com and use code CHAMPION200 to win $200 in free bets if either team hits a three in any nba playoff game visit betmgm.com for terms and conditions 21 years of age or older to wager virginia only new customer offer all promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit free bets expire seven days from issuance please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-888-532-3500 or basically just giving the you know, basically giving the teams more responsibility of their, over their day-to-day and then flattening out the, or, the, uh, the organization. Because some of the most successful game studios are ones that are, are more self-organizing, where, you know, like, like Supercell or Valve. But those are, those are kind of exceptions. Those are ones that have to basically start from scratch to be entirely self-organizing. And then you go into larger studios or larger companies that have hierarchies where you have middle managers who, who entire job is to assign work to individuals where there's a lot of challenge with saying, it's like, Hey, let's give them more control. Let's treat them like adult professionals Yeah. and let them let's, let's agree on what a goal is and let them figure out as a team how to get there. Uh, and they'll do a better job. I mean, that's just that's just absolutely provable, and it's one of those things that happens overnight almost where you give a cross-discipline group a challenge. It's like, hey, let's make jumping fun in the game, and we'll, you know, you, you figure out how to achieve it, and we'll see you in two or three weeks. You know, we'll give you, we'll give you support and advice and feedback wherever you need it. But the, the thing is, is that when the most, the most powerful factor in game development or any development is the uh, cohesion of the team. 
you know, this is the same in, in, in the military as well, is that team cohesion and chemistry has such spectacular impacts on productivity. And this is another lesson I learned. It's a story I tell in the book where we were working on Midtown Madness, which is a very successful game. Mm-hmm. But at first, Microsoft wanted it to be a traffic simulator where you could actually get stuck in traffic jams. <laughs> and uh, so we developed it. And we were like, oh, we don't really believe in this game. But uh, they left us alone. And we started doing things like putting in extra wide sidewalks that, hey, you could actually drive on. And uh, and started adding a little bit of this over-the-top madness, like we put in a big, huge shopping mall with a bunch of things that could be destroyed, like the Blues Brothers yeah. movie. And we just kept adding these things and adding these things. And then finally, when you know that storm turned on us, they were like, hey, this isn't the game we paid for. And... You know, we kept adding things. And, you know, we were working, you know, you'd be brushing my teeth and come up with ideas like this cops and robbers mode kind of captured the flag in a racing game. And, uh, but, you know, we were a team. None of us had ever worked on a video game before. And it was our first video game. And, um, you know, it just it was just a pleasure to work on. And it was one of the more successful games I've ever worked on. If you could find ways of building that team cohesion and the right chemistry People just don't want to let down the people they work with on a day-to-day basis, and and they'll they'll, you know, they'll talk together, and they'll they'll work together, they'll solve problems at the scene on a day-to-day basis, and they'll come up with some fantastic ideas or solutions that, uh, as a manager, you know, I was just blown away by. It. You know, I'd come in in the morning, and and a programmer and an artist decided to work overnight on this this awesome feature. And they showed it to me, and I was just like, I can't believe you were able to do that. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's just like it would be one of the best features in the game. Yeah. So just opening up, giving people creativity is, is a huge benefit. Yeah, Midtown Madness is such a testament to empowering team members because uh, even even some of the folks I've talked to who like, hey, do, do you remember this game? This just came up the other day. And, and somebody will say, no, I don't really remember that, but... Uh, it sort of set the tone for like Driver that came out right after it. Some of the aspects of the you know the Grand Theft Auto games and stuff. Uh, people really love that style of gameplay and and sort of the fact that iterations based on fun ideas from the the creative levels is really a, a powerful statement about how valuable that is because once a conversation starts about that that game still seems to have a lot of fans and the the games that came right after have a lot of fans as well so that's pretty impressive yeah it's it's shocking i mean it's just 20 years later and i went and i uh i went into a discord conversation with midtown madness fans and it was it was crazy <laughs> and it was really the reason why it was the reason why Rockstar bought us. And the, uh, the Housers were huge fans of of Midtown Madness, and we happened to run into them at E3, and and uh, you know they they uh, we did mid, mid, Midnight Club with them and Smugglers Run, which was kind of a little bit over the top, but it was the same thing with those teams. I mean, I, I remember this story from Smugglers Run where. Uh, there was a programmer that threw in. He wanted the designer wanted animals running around. Smuggler's Run was kind of an outdoor racing game uh, where you're smuggling something from Mexico, typical Rockstar game. <laughs> and uh, and so he decided to just throw in uh, deer running around in the game. And so I used to one of the things I used to do is I used to bring home these uh, these these test kits, these uh, test consoles. This was a, a PlayStation Two launch game. 
and have my sons play it. And they were like three and six years old at the time. And, uh, at one time, so I brought it home after he put the deer in and there's random, random individual deer running around the, the forest. It was just supposed to be edge with the prop. And my sons had completely abandoned the racing element and were just hunting deer down to just run, hit deer. <laughs> and the deer would have perfect elasticity and they would just fly off ragdolling <laughs> and they were laughing their butts off. And it turned out, it's just like, that turned out to be the most fun feature in the game. The re- all the reviewers were just like saying, yeah, racing is fun, but you can actually go after deer. And, uh, <laughs> so again, it was just like these little things that the developers would come up with and think of and throw in. It took them like four hours to put it in there. Yeah. It just yeah. turned out to just like, you know, be part of a hit game that people loved that you couldn't, you know, that was never, that would never got into a design document. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You uh, clearly have a knack for being in the right place at the right time from uh, reading about and hearing about your career. And I have to heap some praise for a moment on Midnight Club. I actually played Midnight Club the night before my wedding eight years ago. Uh, It's funny and kind of random, but we were at the hotel. I had my own room to sort of get ready and... uh, and all that the night before, and I had brought some of my computer stuff with me and everything, and I, I had some games, and I thumbed through there. I'm like, I have, I have not played this game nearly enough, and I had a lovely time. Totally put me in a great headspace for <laughs> what came the following day. <laughs> yeah, I have a similar story I shared in the book where uh, I was playing Mech Warrior 3, so I contacted the developers of Mech Warrior 3, and that was another amazing story where the developers on their own pulled a rabbit out of their hat. And MechWarrior 3 was a very, very popular game that was canceled. And they saved it over a weekend. Oh, the Midnight Redesign, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I tell that full story in the book. I tracked those guys down on LinkedIn. and uh, But the, yeah, the similar thing was like um, with my first child was due, um, my wife, five weeks early, she went into labor. And I was I was trying to finish up the game. And she, she came in and... and uh, she, uh, I was playing the game, and she says, um, I'm feeling these weird pains. And uh, I said, well, have you called the doctor? And she said, oh, I'll, I'll call him right now. And so she calls him. She comes back to me like 15 minutes later, and she says, "She says, well, if I get uh, – the doctor said if I get 10 more of these pains in the next hour to come to the hospital. And so I kind of looked up at the clock, and I was like going, yeah, I can finish this game in an hour. No problem, honey. <laughs> <laughs> I finished the game in an hour, and uh, six hours later, my first son was born. So, oh, my goodness. <laughs> very similar to the story to yours. That's incredible. Uh, and it's funny the way certain games stick with us attached to other memories like that. That's that's uh, this sort of speaks on how powerful the the, the medium is. But um, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's like I, got, I used to get emails from, like, Midtown Madness from parents with um, disabled children that said, you know, it's like my son can't play a game where he has to race a very fixed race. You know, in um, in Midtown Madness, we just had the joyride feature where you could just drive anywhere you want yeah, and not have to race. And just stories like that was just was uh, was fantastic. Oh, yeah. How nice. What a nice bonus for you to hear hear something like that. That's incredible. Yeah. So in, in terms of people who uh, would look for this book and, and sort of use this as a playbook, obviously for industry professionals and, and management level folks. It makes a ton of sense. Uh, I could see it used in uh, college courses, no problem at all. I'm wondering, is there 
a size limit or can I mean indies benefit from this approach? What what can you bring to the table for smaller teams like that? Yeah, I mean I interviewed uh, a number of indie developers for the book. I mean I I, I was kind of an indie developer in the uh, the early '80s, you know, making games and putting them in Ziploc bags for an Atari 8-bit computers. And uh, really, just uh, the focus on them is is you know the, the lessons learned is just you know to focus on debt. You know, just in while you're stuffing features into the game, you know, focus on making them work and and uh, you know not letting the bugs and things pile up. You know, like that I've done a lot of work recently over the last several years with new platforms like virtual reality and augmented reality with mm-hmm. like Weta Workshop and Magic Leap and Oculus and you know dealing with brand new platforms. You know, how do you make a game? For a platform that you don't, you can't even uh, look at yet. That's yeah. not going. You're not even going to have prototypes for another year. How do you design for that? And uh, saw some really interesting things happening down in Weta in New Zealand that they were they were trying out that uh, we learned from. Um, and I got a lot of feedback from first edition from people outside the game industry because you know, it talks about, uh, you know, how creative people and technical people get together. And my biggest client um, was uh, Apple before Steve Jobs died because, you know, his focus was on the, you know, the overlap of the creative and technical. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he had, he was like Miyamoto. He just like would come in and drop a bomb on me and and say, I want it three weeks. And uh, the development uh, approach was for them at the time. Just yeah, everyone plays games, and uh, and so just like connecting with stories, and the story of how uh, game development adopted an agile approach, uh, really connects with people outside the game industry or anybody like uh, film production, for example, that has a creative element mm-hmm. um, that can understand because it's like you know game development faced much bigger challenges uh, than than just IT development. You know, because, you know, with IT development, you might have a, a group of different programmers where one does the user interface and the other does the database. Working closely with them, I can see how they're struggling with the technology. Or we can talk about the limits of technology and they can understand that a little bit more. So the dynamic is a, is a little bit different. But, you know, it applies to companies making... Uh, you know, underwater vehicles where the mechanical engineer and the electrical engineer have to talk to this engineer and and uh, figure out how to best work together and and discover when they don't speak each other's language so much. Mm-hmm. Have you been close to any VR development in like a large team situation? Because I mean, that's something I've kind of been curious about as this is starting to take off, and we've seen some some uh, big AAA and uh, large budget VR projects take off. I mean, have you seen that up close? Not really, no. And um, I don't think it's to me. It's just like I finished playing uh, Alex, which just blew me away on my Vive. Yeah, and uh, it was really great to see because it just is starting to explore that vocabulary, which is unique in VR. But you can kind of see from their approach is like the same thing where where you're finding the fun uh, at the start of the project, and in VR, what you're doing is you're starting with the basic vocabulary. The idea is like you know at first you're you're developing the alphabet. What is the best way to move? What's the limitations of, of movement? And I've watched the videos that they've published on the development mm-hmm. of Alex and exploring how they found what the limits are, what are the things that we can do to avoid 
frustration in VR, which, you know, movement frustration, frustration is a big part of it, which I don't think a lot of developers, even with the small games, really focused on as much as they could. And, uh, and just the scale of environments. Just like, hey, with VR, you can look around all over the place and you could just, you could just put these, tr- integrate these tremendous scenes of giant mechanical robots walking across skyscrapers and destroying parts of the skyscrapers while they're doing it. Yeah. And um, that's part of the vocabulary. Build those, that vocabulary up before you're ready to build sentences, build chapters on those paragraphs. That story. That yeah. same approach still works of, you know, you know, instead of trying to trying to write a book without having a consistent vocabulary, it's just build things up in the proper order. Deal with your risks and the uncertainties first, and then build upon those and exploit uh, what you've learned about what's fun. And, uh, and I think that just applies across across anything. Like really, the challenge is when you're building something for a uncertain form or even uncertain market that hasn't revealed itself. Kind of this moving target. Um, that you kind of have to keep your options open because a lot of times I see with new platforms coming out, which means that they have to get to get versions of the final well ahead of time. In some platforms, uh, it uh, it can compromise the game and compromise the market. Mm-hmm. And uh, speaking of change, how is agile methodology holding up to? remote work and all of the things that we've sort of had to start doing since the pandemic started, because I know a lot of studios have, have done some from homework. Uh, some still aren't back in the office. So how does that communication element hold up when, uh, you know, everybody's working from home? Yeah. I mean, it's, it, there's a cost, you know, we've been saying all along that, uh, you know, with, with, with teams, uh, these cross-discipline teams, co-location is best. And one of the th- one of the things that uh, you have in an agile approach is these metrics that can tell you that that uh, you know when when you have cross-discipline team that's co-located in the same area and they can just lean over and talk to each other, that things you know, things get done. Now. Uh, and uh, so we've kind of discovered that there's 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 tools that we can use to kind of improve communication. But at the same time, that we've we've discovered, you know, through just the pure metrics, that yeah, it is taking people longer to uh, to work remotely. Um, but you're, what you're going to see, I think, in the future is that there's going to be a hybrid of remote and on-site work, where you know we don't necessarily have to be in the office eight hours a day, five days a week, uh, to have the benefits of of you know mixing it up because there's also people report individual productivity has has increased where they can set their own hours but uh, you know the integrated work is suffering as a result so I think from either an agile point of view or just a traditional uh, uh, waterfall point of view that uh, it's uh, this work from home has in many ways impacted uh, but what one of the things that we've done have worked. I, I I switched from I mean I was 100% traveling to studios before this whole thing happened and now I'm 100% remote work. So what we do with teams is, you know, the, the core strength of agility is to have these regular every two or three weeks have these retrospectives where we discuss how can we improve our productivity. What have we done in the last two or three weeks that has either worked against it or improved it from the last time we had that retrospective and. Uh, and come up with uh, a various thing to try these little experiments on how we could better work together based on 
you know, what's gotten in our way. So I think it responds traditional methods to to change, and that's the whole point. Because you know the the, the pandemic has changed everything, but and game development or any IT development these days, it's like, hey, the, the you know the phones are constantly changing, our computers are constantly changing, the market is constantly changing, so we have to keep up with change. Yeah, something I've heard on social media often is, well, you know, this this might make the industry lean toward you know being being more accepting of remote work because. That's always the rally cry among those of us who don't live near industry hotspots like myself being in St. Louis. I would have loved to work in the game industry fresh out of college or really at any time since. But without relocating, it was never very realistic uh, unless it was just a very small studio full of people who did work 100% remote. But it it sounds like, you know, you say there, there may be a small shift, but it seems like for these reasons, the industry will probably still lean toward being physically located together. Yeah, I think, I, like I said, I think there'll be a hybrid where it's like, hey, you go in for, you know, a couple days a week uh, so we can have more face-to-face, mm-hmm. which, you know, regardless of whether it's 40 hours a week or 10 hours a week, you kind of have to be near each other. But at the same time, it's like you look at it, it's like there's a bunch of game developers in the Bay Area look at the cost of living in the Bay Area, and let's say it's like, oh, instead, you know, you could work in St. Louis and uh, telecommute in, uh, where St. Louis is as expensive in the Bay Area, and that cost differential might offset the loss of productivity. Um, so I think we're still exploring that. We're still learning it. Uh, you know, we uh, a, a friend of mine and I, we, we published a a book on remote teamwork tools. You know, just again, we just collected. We just asked people, "What are you doing? What's working? What are some of the things you can do um, to help working at home?" And um, you know, and just uh, you know, things that we've we've learned over the last several months that uh, that uh, you know, has worked. And it could be just you know, it could be simple things like, hey, you know, when your when your kid bursts in in the middle of a teleconference, yeah, introduce your kid. <laughs> you, know, it's, you know, don't don't get all upset about it and 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 uh, shush them out. So, like, hey, you're, you know, you've brought your work into the home, okay, and so you you know you have to integrate with your home. And it's just you know, don't worry about it. Everyone's everyone's dealing with it. But uh, you know, some of the tools that, that are coming out, I've been doing training and coaching in a virtual reality environment, and uh, it holds a lot of promise for the way we're working in the future. Uh, virtual reality hardware isn't quite there yet for doing it, but hey, with augmented reality, who knows? Yeah, uh, yeah. you know where that's going in the future. And that hits me close to home because my in-laws are visiting right now, or you would have absolutely met my son by now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's with the way things move so fast. I don't think we're done developing the the remote work toolbox and I'm, I'm sure people are going to start working on that uh, more fervently than ever now based on uh, the need for it but it kind of brings me back to how fast games in general move so quickly and I mean you just did the second edition of the book I, I don't know how much time there was between the first and second but you know I bet you'll have to work on the third pretty soon well it's just the idea is just like books I mean the whole idea of you know publishing a big paper book and it's been 10 years Yes, yeah, a part of it is it's it's kind of it is is really a slow cycle, and so, you know, I publish, I have a blog and everything else like that, and I share things um, 
with the blog, but yeah, coming out with a book is a lot like a coming out with a game project. You know, you have deadlines which really drive you and, uh, you know, big launches like a console game and stuff like that. And so I think it's this combination of just like, you know, connecting more with the audience on a day-to-day basis and publishing. It's like, hey, you know, just I learned this last week. Uh, or I, I ran into a developer that's that's uh, okay with me sharing this technique that they use and, and pumping that out more frequently. But yeah, in, in terms of coming out with a book, the new edition, I think half of the new content, I just kind of went back and collected and reviewed the stuff I've been writing about over the last 10 years. And then, but also had time to kind of sit down and uh, kind of bring things together under a common framework in terms of, and this is what my GDC presentation is about, which is, you know, how to create a culture. And the, and the analogy is, is building up a, a culture which strengthens itself from stress, from, uh, from failures. And the analogy is it's like you go to the gym, you work out at the gym, and you're stressing your body out. You're actually damaging your body in a small way, but your body gets stronger as a result, and, mm-hmm. you, and you, you become stronger. And there's an analogy to that in, in, uh, in development studios that, you know, instead of, like one example is instead of, uh, you know, putting bugs into a bug database, every time a bug comes up or a, a set of common bugs come up, look at the root cause. Look at the, you know, what is, what is allowing these bugs to get into our game and eliminating the root cause of how that's happening so that it doesn't happen in the future. Instead of just fixing a problem, go after and fix the root cause of it. And that's kind of the same thing as you're strengthening yourself through these little micro failures or, or this, these stressors that, uh, you know, makes your organization stronger. So I go over four different areas where you can kind of, uh, you know, make your studio culture stronger by going through these things and building up, you know, addressing risk like I talked about or, or building up, uh, you know, the skill level and challenge at the developer level so that they're much more engaged. Uh, with the work that they're doing, and they do much better work. They get, you know, your organization gets stronger in that way. Mm-hmm. Outstanding. I think that'll be a very interesting presentation, and I'm I'm hoping that it'll be very well attended with the, uh, you know, first remote GDC event coming up. You think that'll be, you think that'll go well? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, people are, you know, people are getting a little burnt out of spending a lot of time, you know, with my courses is that I still, I teach my courses online and in virtual reality. Um, but I, I break them up. And so instead of like eight hour, you're not face to face, you can't do physical activities as much. And, uh, so I think, you know, we've learned those lessons with DC and just kind of breaking things up and making it more accessible so that people can drop in and just attend the session they want to this virtual com- virtual reality company. I'm working with, uh, uh Verbella. They do things like that. They can hold these uh, expos. And uh, when you kind of you factor in, it's just like, hey, I can go to this session or that session, but I didn't have to jump on a plane. I didn't have to go to an expo hall and have a which is a mile away from my hotel. So I don't constantly walk around the hall. Oh, you're kind of cutting out there and something like that. So I think the positive is like, yeah, it's like we don't have to book flights to San Francisco and find an expensive hotel and, uh, you know, just hang around all day. Uh, that's a benefit, even though, you know, we don't get to go to the parties. 
<laughs> True. Uh, and and I th- I thought Apple's uh, worldwide developer conference online was actually pretty excellent. Like I I got to watch that from the couch, hanging out with my son. And when something wasn't uh, grabbing me, I just you know walked outside, did something else for a while, and came back. I loved it. I thought it was great. Yeah, it's, I live in a neighborhood up in uh, at seventy five hundred on the side of a mountain at seventy five hundred feet. And uh, yeah, we've had like uh, I think it was like ten to fifteen percent of the houses have sold over the last year and a lot of young professionals like employees of Google or Comcast have moved in and uh, you know, they're, they're working from home and they do the same thing. It's just like, yeah, you know, I'll get up, I'll do some work and I'll take a hike in the mountains or swim in the lake and then I'll come back and I'll do some work. And you know, it's, it's that kind of mixture of, you know, deciding what your life looks like on a day to day basis. You know, they, they feel fully productive and, happier so it'll be an interesting new world at the end of this i'm very curious to see what we take forward into the future with us from this whole experience because it's it's really been wild um go ahead and tell us sort of where we can find you online and uh, what what to grab and uh, plug anything you like and i'll get you on your way okay uh well the book i have a website called uh, agilegamedevelopment.com and uh, it just kind of has uh, you know, some initial things about the book. My website is uh, Clinton Keith, uh, Clinton like the president, A-E-I-T. And if, uh, for GDC, just go to uh, gdcconf.com. My session is called Taming the Chaos. Very nice. Well, uh, we'll look forward to hearing that and um, look forward to having you back next time and uh, see what you've been up to again later. So uh, thanks, thanks for doing this. And uh, Great to chat with you. You as well. Congratulations on your game dev breakdown, whatever that is. Sounds idiotic to me.